0: all right good morning we um, we've had a um, whenever uh, you know this whole thing with the COVID and and all that going around uh, our phone over the last few days has been blowing up with different calls from people or texts from people uh, that were saying that uh, they uh, were either exposed or they had uh, this COVID that's going around right now. So it is out there. We're all aware of it. We're all kind of watching what's going on. Um, but one of the things that I want to encourage us all uh, this morning and with all of that said, uh, is that we have a God that loves you very much. We have a God that that holds you in His hands. And I hope that all of us in faith, trusting and believing that we trust that. That God actually holds your very life in His hands. And I don't believe that God wants us to live a life of fear. I don't think He wants us to to be living our life and, and, and restricting ourselves from gathering together as a church. I don't believe that. I believe that God wants us to gather even the more so as we see the day approaching. But what's happening, I believe, and it's happening even within the church, is that we have people that are fearful. And I don't believe that we test God. I don't think we should test the Lord. And I don't believe we are testing the Lord by showing up at church. I believe we're acting in obedience and we're doing what God has called us to do. And then we trust. And we trust in the love that God has for us. Let me read to you a passage out of 1 John chapter 4. John writes this. He says in verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. God holds you. God is holding you in His hand. He loves you. Your days are marked out by the Lord. The Lord knows. And so we have and should not live in fear. He goes on in verse 17 and He says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we, in this world. His love, that love that He has for us gives us that boldness. In that day, when you stand before the Lord, you should know this. When I stand before Him, I'm standing before a God that loves me. That gave His life for me. And that should be something that is in our hearts and minds now as we wait for that day to approach. John goes on and he says this. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. And I believe that there's a lot of people in this world, Christian and non Christian, that are being tormented by their fears. I believe that we need to grow in our understanding of God's great love for you that He holds you, that He loves you, He cares for you, your life, your family, all of those things, and that we would just say, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to live trusting. He says, because he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. God's love is great, and I I pray that that's an encouraging word for you today, especially if you tend to be a person that really gets wrung around by your fears. That you would say, God, would you help me to understand your love for me in a greater way? And so um, this morning, we're going to get back to the book of James. It seems like it has been a while. It's been uh, about five weeks, I guess, since we've been in James. We're back in James this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to chapter four. We're going to be looking at verses one to six this morning. I title this morning's message: Worldliness is enmity with God. And let's uh, let's pray again. Father, I lift up your church this morning. Lord, I, I pray for those that are out sick. Lord, those that we have received message from. Lord, that you would be with them in this moment, Lord. That you would uh, have your healing hand upon them, Lord. And, and Lord, that you would protect, Lord, in these families, even others from from getting it. But Lord, I pray that you would just continue that good work of growing us, Lord, through our, our testings and trials of life, Lord. and Even when it comes to our health, Lord, we know that you're with us. You created these bodies, Lord. And Lord, you're able to heal, you're able to touch, you're able to preserve us, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, for each one, Lord, that is dealing with sickness this morning, that you would touch and heal and Father, I pray that as we open up Your Word, that You'd speak into our hearts this morning. We need, Lord, Your truth. We need to hear from You. Lord, we want to grow. We want to mature. We want to understand what it means, Lord, to live a life that's apart from this world. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Worldliness is at enmity with God. Throughout the book of James and in our text this morning, James is going to answer the question, what is worldliness? And I I believe that we probably, if we ask that question, we might get different responses from all of us this morning. What is it to be a worldly Christian. What I, just looking at this letter of James, have come to realize is that this letter is a letter of wisdom and understanding. James is wanting to impart to a church, to a a group of believers, not one particular church, but a group of believers this issue of wisdom and understanding. And he brings out all sorts of topics for us to consider in this letter. It's a letter of faith and works. We might say that this letter is living what we believe. We we know what we believe, but are we living what we believe? Starting in chapter 1. For those of you that have been here through this teaching, in chapter 1, we, James wrote about having joy in trials. He talked about faith without doubting, enduring temptations from within, being doers of the Word and not hearers only. He defines pure religion before God and not showing partiality or becoming judges of others. He says, faith without works is dead. And he tells us the importance of taming the tongue, that wisdom and understanding are seen in our good conduct, that worldly wisdom stands in contrast to heavenly wisdom. And we ended chapter three a number of weeks back in verse 18 look at your Bibles. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We see quite the contrast coming into chapter 4 this morning. As we leave chapter 3 and we come into chapter 4, keep in mind that chapter breaks, they were put there by man. They weren't in the original as they were written out. We don't have chapter breaks and we don't have verses. This was a letter that was just being written. But we leave verse 18 and we come into chapter 4, verse 1 and look what it says. Where do wars and fights come from Among you, asking a question. Now, he says among you. Now, some translations and some people make interpretation of this, that where do wars and fights come from within you? And I want to say that I think we could say really both here. Among us, or among you as a church, or as a church body, but also within us. Because we know that wars and fights, they typically start from within, in our heart, inside of us. And then they begin to affect those that are among you. Those that you fellowship with. Those brothers and sisters in Christ. James is making it a point here to talk about worldliness. And what is the cause? What is it and what's the cause of it? these wars and these fights that come from among you he goes on in verse 1 do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members and again we could say the same thing the desires that war within side of us the ungodly desires quite often that war within side of our hearts and they have an effect also upon those that are members of the body of Christ. Within and those members that are part of the community of believers that we fellowship with. That's the concern that James has. Look what he says in verse 2. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. He goes on in verse 4 Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's our text. This morning in verses 7 to 10, and we'll look at that next week, and I'll give you uh, a hint of where we're going to go with that. Next week's title is The Cure for Worldliness. We might say that James in this letter is addressing the sins of a worldly church the church, it didn't take long for the world to start creeping into the church. And we as Christians, we ourselves know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there are times where this world wants to creep into your own life, your own walk, your own relationship with the Lord. You might have started out real well. When you gave your life to Christ knowing that your sins had been forgiven and and wow, just rejoicing in that and then in time, those sins of this world and our flesh begin to creep in. It didn't take long in the early church. You see, worldliness is sin. Worldliness is something that James speaks a lot about. In this letter, it's for any of you that have read the book of James before. You know, whenever you pick up the book of James, you go, Wow, that's a hard hitting letter. He says so much and he gets into all of these areas that quite often we all struggle in or have struggled in. Here's some of the things that James speaks about in this letter, and this isn't even all of them. He says that. We struggle at times with unbelief or having a lack of faith. Anyone been there? We struggle with those things. He spoke of that to the Christians. Remember, this letter is being written to believers, to Christians. He spoke about anger in, in James 1.19 and 20. He talked about bitterness in James 2.7. Jealousy. And partiality towards others in James two nine. He talked about the tongue in James three five and six. Bitter envy and self seeking in James three fourteen to sixteen. He talks about warring and fighting in our text this morning in in James chapter four. Speaking evil and judging in this text. Boasting about tomorrow in James four fifteen and sixteen, knowing to do good and not doing it in James four seventeen, the sins of riches in James chapter five verses one to three, murmuring and complaining in James five nine, swearing an oath in James five twelve. That's not even all of them. But these are the sins that James is bringing out for the believers to have to consider in their own hearts, in their own lives. We're doing the same thing today. 2,000 years later, we're reading this letter of James and saying, God, would You mature me? Would You change me? Would You do this work in my heart? Is what we should all be asking the Lord. In chapter 1, James says that sin comes from temptation. I think we all know that. Sin comes from the temptations from within. But each one of us, James says in verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire is conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. That's sin. That's the struggle that we all have when it comes to temptation. And we all experience that. It's what we yield to. It's what we give in to that makes the difference. You see, we can have victory over sin. God has given us the victory shout over sin. But we must do it God's way. In chapter 2, sin makes us a lawbreaker. We read in chapter uh, 2, verse 9, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You see, there's a lot of laws and a lot of things that are said in God's Word that we should do or not do but there's a lot of times that we are not always in agreement with what God's Word says. We say, well, that's too hard. That's too much. I can't do that. And we, in a sense, we become a transgressor of God's law, God's Word, what God has said to us. We transgress that in our actions and just saying, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to live that way. I can't do it to that extreme. I can't you know, and we, in essence, we are transgressing the law of God. Sin is the transgression of the law. In chapter four, we read that sin speaks evil of God's law. In James 4:11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He's speaking to Christians. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." Again, we can't pick and choose what part of God's Word we want to be obedient to. It's God's Word, all of His Word to us. And God, would You change me? In these areas. and In chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4 in verse 17, James says that sin is failing to do what is right. He says in verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's sin. If you know something to be right, that's something that you should do and you don't do it, sin. In chapter 5, James says that sin can be forgiven. Aren't we glad? Sin can be forgiven. In chapter 5, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we rejoice in that. God's continual Forgiveness of our sin. It's a daily cleansing of our sin. And so, back to the question of worldliness. What is worldliness? One person wrote and put it this way, it's avoiding worldly things. It, 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 avoiding worldly things, excuse me, means to avoid mirroring the world and only mirroring God. Avoiding mirroring the world and only mirroring God. The dictionary defines this word worldly this way. Relating to or being devoted to the temporal world. Worldliness, then, is the condition of being concerned with worldly affairs, especially to the neglect of spiritual things. Getting caught up into the world and the worldly things that are out there that want to draw us away from the spiritual things that we should be seeking as believers we're wanting to define what is a worldly christian and quite often when we think of a worldly christian we think of you know those big five things that christians don't do you know we don't drink we don't smoke we don't go to movies we don't dance we don't you know we get into this whole thing of characterizing what we quote call a worldly christian what james is going to show us in these verses is This morning is that worldliness is a lot deeper than just those things. Don't try to put it down into a list of worldly things and how a person dresses and how they might look that classifies them as being worldly. Because I can tell you there's a lot of religious people that are worldly and by all outward appearances, they don't do any of those things. Worldliness, as I shared, is sin. It brings out and it comes out in all sorts of different ways within the Christian life. This is what Jesus said about our relationship with Him when we gave our life to Christ. He said this to His disciples the last night before He was arrested. In John 15, 19, He says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, In essence, the Lord says, I took you out of this world. You are mine. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You live in this world, but you're really not of this world. We don't have to live by the dictates of this world. We can actually follow our Lord in this world in a way that would glorify Him. I chose you out of this world. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He, in essence, took you out of this world and called you His own. In all the epistles of the Bible, the New Testament, worldliness is always the exact opposite of godliness. That's pretty simple. It's just opposite of godliness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7:10, he says this about a type of repentance that quite often people can have before God. He says he calls it worldly sorrow. It's interesting that he words it that way, that worldly sorrow is not a godly sorrow. He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world. It produces death. You see, there's a type of sorrow that God doesn't accept. There's a type of false repentance that God doesn't accept. Repentance and truly being sorrowful for sin. It's a turning around, a turning in a different direction. And so when you give your life to Christ, we want to have and should have this godly sorrow. not a worldly sorrow. And how many times have we cracked tears before God, said, "God, would you forgive me? God, I've been caught again." God, I've fallen again. God, I've done this. But in all the while, it's just a worldly repentance. It's a worldly sorrow. It's not really a godly sorrow. John wrote in 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in Him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those three things. As a matter of fact, to every sin that we ever struggle with would come from one of those three things, if not all of those three things. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. John says, it's not of the Father, these things, but is of the world. What is a worldly Christian? I think it's one who's being led... By his flesh. He's being led by the things that he sees. He's being really led around by his own pride. That's a worldly Christian. Somebody that is not living for godly things, but living for fleshly things. Letting his flesh or her flesh control them. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to control our life. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul says in Galatians. James, he draws a clear distinction between friendship with God and friendship with the world. Look at your Bibles at verse 4. At the second half of it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, that's straightforward. That's to the point. Enmity with God, an enemy. Of God, and James says, "When we choose friendship with this world, we're at enmity with God." Or we could say it this way: it shows hatred towards God. You know, well, that's a big word—hatred towards God. But that's actually what the word means. Enmity. It's hatred. Defined as hatred. Hatred towards God. Enmity is opposite of agape. It's opposite of God's agape love. And so being a friend of the world, we make ourselves an enemy of God. James is using, I believe, these very strong words here about hatred and enemy to make a point. If you choose friendship with the world, you're choosing to live, we might say, to live a life in the enemy's camp. We make those choices to do that. Even as Christians, we make a decision of where our camp is going to be. If you choose to live in the enemy's camp, the things of this world, then in essence, James is saying that you are an enmity with God. You're an enemy of God. He thought, well, I didn't know I could be an enemy of God. I'm a child of God. But we can live as Christians in a worldly sense of living in the world. In essence, that relationship that you have with God is likened to being like an enemy of God. Because we can't do both. John wrote in 1 John 5.19, he says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Did you know that? That the whole world that we live in, the one that the Lord says that you're not part of, that He has taken you out of, so to speak, is under the sway of the wicked one. We live in this world. We all know it. I don't even have to explain it to you. Just go outside the doors and look. This world is under the sway of the wicked one. Here's worldliness. It has to do with the things that we want. It has to do with the desires of our heart. You know, like we never have enough. Or the flesh is never satisfied. Have you ever tried to satisfy this flesh of yours? With whatever that might be. You try to satisfy it through whatever. And you always need more. It's never really satisfied. It never will be. No matter how many times we fail and stumble and try to satisfy this flesh, it'll never be satisfied except in Him. And we go to great lengths to obtain what we can't have. James says in verse 2 and 3, look what he says. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet And cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Do you notice how he's just pointing that to those he's writing to? You lust. You murder and covet. You fight in war. You do not have. You do not ask. You do not receive. And you spend it on your own pleasures. James is being very straightforward. And keep in mind, we're talking to Christians here. We would want and hope maybe that we're talking about unbelievers here. But we're talking about Christians that are reading this letter. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Our flesh wants, and it will go to great lengths to get what it wants. Even as James is bringing out here, murder, covetousness, fighting and warring. You know, and and all of these things that we look at and go, I didn't know that Christians were murderers. But for those of us that would want to try to sidestep that question, then what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? About what we would say out of our lips is murder. You see, even as a Christian, and James is saying it, and putting it in such words that it seems very harsh. But I can tell you that within the realm of a church, within the, our own hearts, and with amongst Christians, there have been a lot of Christians that have been murdered in the church. There's been a lot of Christians that have been murdered in the mission field through another brother, through another sister that has allowed their flesh because it wants it wants to be ahead. It wants, to, whatever it is, there's motives behind all. And we fight and we war with one another. You see, we're getting really to the crux of what worldliness is. It's not just in how you dress and the five bad things that we call that you don't do. And then James says here that. You don't have because you don't ask. You want. You desire. You go to great lengths to satisfy your own pleasure, your own self, your own wants. You covet after other people's things. You do all these things. You murder with your heart and your lips. Yet you've never even asked You don't even ask the one who can give. You simply will go the route of trampling over those to get what you want. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, God loves it when we come with humble hearts before Him and say, "God." This is my need and desire. And if You were to have me to have this desire that I have, or this, Lord, would You supply that? Would You meet that need in my life? If we come before the Lord and we ask to satisfy self... You see, worldliness is about self. It's about self-indulgence. It's about just meeting my need. And quite often, the things that we ask for, we ask amiss, that we may spend it on our own pleasure. You see, it's all about me. What I need and what I want that James is wanting to address. Have you ever wondered when you ask God for something, you ask and you ask and you ask. And God doesn't give it. I don't know how many times I've asked for this. And I don't get it. Is God even hearing? Is He even hearing my prayer requests? And the problem is we're asking amiss. We're asking for some, something that maybe God says, I know this would not be good for you. And He doesn't answer it in the way that we want it answered. And so we think, is He even hearing me? And He actually heard the very first time you asked. And He told you no the very first time you asked. You just didn't want to hear that. Because you were asking amiss and God wants to protect us. He wants to really, in essence, He saves us from ourselves. But when you ask, and it's God's will, and it's God's desire, God gives it to us. He loves you. He wants to impart those things. We don't have to step over people to get the things that our flesh says that it wants. I don't know if you know this, but if you don't know it, our biggest enemy is pride. I hope you all know that. That is your number one enemy. Your pride. Pride is worldliness. Pride is lukewarmness. Pride actually in immaturity and fleshly desires and self-centeredness and All of these things are the things that cause wars and fights among you. Murder and covetousness and lack of answered prayers. And I'll add even lack of power in our lives as Christians. That pride will always stand in the way of all of that. It'll get in the way of of all of that. Our pride. The pride of life. The last of the seven churches in the book of Revelation is the church at Laodicea. It's referred to as the lukewarm church. It's also been referred to as the last day's church. And I I would say I would have to agree with that. The church of the Laodiceans. We read in Revelation 3.14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says this about that church. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of My mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And by the way, that's pride. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, that's a lukewarm church. What does a worldly church look like? What does a lukewarm church look like? There's a description of it there. As Christians, we make a choice. We make choices as Christians all the time to avoid worldliness. And in doing so, it requires effort. It requires effort on our part to avoid worldliness in our life. We have to have effort towards growing up. Maturing in our faith. And not staying spiritual infants. Remember I gave that kind of that theme to the book of James? About maturing and about growing up? Because this letter is that. It's being doers of the Word and not hearers only. It's about maturing. It's about growing up as a Christian. What does a worldly Christian look like? I would say that it's one that is not seeking to avoid the worldliness that's out there in our world, the things that want to draw us in. It's a it's a person that remains a baby in their walk with Christ. been a Christian a long time but I, I haven't grown much. You're probably going to find that you are. Struggle with worldliness. Paul said he gave prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to the church in Ephesians 4. He gave it to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He says, I'm giving you these gifts within the church so that you'll grow up. That we would grow up into a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants to do that through the Word of God and through the ministries of those within the church that we would grow up and that we would mature. And it will cause growth to the whole body. Every one of you finding your gift and your part working within the body of Christ and to have a healthy church as a result of that. That's a healthy church. Paul equates worldliness with spiritual immaturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, he says, he addresses the believers here at this church at Corinth. And he's really addressing them because they have worldly behavior. This is what he says. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. I couldn't feed you solid food. I had to give you milk. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able, for you are still carnal. You're still fleshly. We need to grow up. Paul says to the church of Corinth, you need to grow up. You need to mature. You need to get off of the milk and onto the meat. He says, for where there's envy and strife and division, see here it is, because they're carnal, because they're worldly we could say, and where there's envy and strife and divisions among you and wars and fightings, let's add that. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul and of another and I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? All your bickering of who you follow. and you know? Paul wrote in Romans 8-7, he says the carnal mind the fleshly mind is at enmity. Here he uses it also. It's at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you are a Spirit-led Christian and being led by God's Holy Spirit, then you will be subject to the law of God a carnal mind, a fleshly mind, not even considering the law of God. Paul wrote similar words to James in his letter to the Corinthian church in in, uh, 1 Corinthians one eleven, Paul says this to them, He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleo's household, that there are contentions among you. You see, there's nothing new. The fights and the bickering and the different things that go on within the church today, they were going on back then. Paul's having to address it then as well as it has to be addressed today. Contentions among you. Paul also wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, then Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Isn't that a a wonderful church to belong to? If you find a church fellowship that is all like-minded, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Having the same love Be in a one accord in one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. That's the kind of church I want to belong to. That's a church that is a a mature church. A growing church. I think that's it right there. I think, I think Philippians 2, I think it, it describes a difference between what James is talking about in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure and the war in your members? Quite the contrast to what Paul is describing in Philippi there, the church at Philippi, exhorting them in this. Pride is an ugly thing. And it's the source of all strife. Pride. That happens in the home. Happens at work, school, and church. Strife, pride. We might say that James first defines what worldliness is in verses 1 to 6. But then next week, he's going to give us the cure for worldliness. You don't want to miss the cure for worldliness in our life. You can read ahead, by the way, verses 7 to 10. We might break this text down that we read this morning and what we'll read next week into just two words. Pride and then humility. Those two words. Pride, worldliness, and humility. The cure for worldliness. I shared last week a message about the ten things that matter most. And what are the things that matter most? Well, one of the first things that I had on that list of ten that I gave you was worship God and Him only. And I and I shared out of Matthew 6:24 that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, it's where our allegiances. It's where what camp we're in. The world's camp. That's worldliness. Or we're in God's camp. Number two is that I gave on that list was out of Mark 12.30, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And then number three was... Mark twelve thirty one and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other command commandment greater than these. That's it. If we just did that, if we would just if we would do that, those three, it's all done. We won't be we won't be asking ourselves the question, "Am I a worldly Christian?" you loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself? Not serving two masters? Have you ever tried to do that? One foot in the world and one foot following Christ? It's the most miserable place you can be. Either hot nor cold, as we read out of church at Laodicea. You got one foot in the world and one foot following Christ. It's like trying to walk that split rail fence. And if one leg goes on one side and one goes on the other, you're hurting. You fall on that like that. It's it's not a a comfortable place to be as a Christian. I think we've probably all found ourselves to some degree in that place. If we just keep this order God first, others second, and myself last, then we were not going to have wars and fightings among us. That's it. That simple. Just God first, others second, and myself last. If we do that in our Homes, we do that in our church, we do that wherever we're at. We're not going to have wars and fightings and contentions among us. It's really that simple. Idolatry is spoken of throughout the Bible. Idolatry is any time there's a portion of your heart that has, a greater, has more of you a greater part than God has of it. Or when God is not on the, the center of your heart or the throne of your heart. It's a form of idolatry when something takes the prominent place in your heart. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything anything that takes the prominent place in our heart is a form of idolatry. It's a, it's a friendship with the world, we could say. Paul in Ephesians 2.1, speaking of the days before you knew the Lord, he said this, He made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in those days. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. You once walked according to the course of this world. You couldn't help but do that. According to the prince of the power of the air, you mean I was being led around by Satan himself? Couldn't help. I wasn't being led by God. I was being led by something other than God. The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He called me a son of disobedience, not a child of God. Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath just as others. That was our days before Christ. In Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind again is at enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But then look what he says in verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain or to no purpose, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, this has actually raised some questions of interpretation in this particular verse because some of your translations may have the spirit there capitalized. And some of your translations may have it in lowercase. One meaning the spirit of God and the other one being the spirit of man, your spirit, within you. The King James, New King James, has it capitalized, what I'm reading from. The old King James has spirit in lower case. It could mean man's spirit within them. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Asking a question is what James is saying. Where's my interpretation? I lean towards that the spirit here should be capitalized, as it is in my Bible That it's speaking of God's Spirit that lives inside of us and jealously yearning for our full devotion before Him. You see, as I shared last week, God doesn't want just part of us. He wants every bit of us. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want just little bits of you. He wants every bit of our being. Body, soul, and spirit. He wants it all. He wants us to give our lives as a living sacrifice unto Him. In Exodus 34.14 we read, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 4.23, take heed to yourself lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you, and make for yourself carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You see, God wants it all. And then in Psalm 79, 5, how long, Lord? Asking a question. Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Jealousy. In God's perspective, His jealousy towards you is that He is yearning for you to give your all to Him. It's what He desires. He's jealous for that. He doesn't want us to have a divided heart. He doesn't want us to give an allegiance to the world and an allegiance to Him. We finish in verse 6. And um, I decided to stop on this verse for this morning because of the words, but He gives more grace. He's actually quoting James. is quoting Proverbs 3.34 which reads surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 God gives grace to the humble. What's our greatest enemy? Pride. But God gives grace to the humble. You see if you want to experience the grace of God then you need to be a person that says, God, I need Your help. You need to help me with my pride. God, I, I, apart from You, I can do nothing. You see, pride will always stand in your way of receiving the grace that God wants to bestow upon you. Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, he says, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. When God gave the law, it showed you how sinful you were. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound, where your sin was so ugly and it led to death. God's grace abounded and overflooded your sin. It continues to overflood your sin every single day. The grace of God. God gives more grace to the humble. He gives more strength to the humble. And we read in Hebrews 4.16, he says, let us therefore come boldly as Christians, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can. You can come right before the throne of God boldly. Come right before the Lord and say, God, I need your grace. We come with a humble heart. We come with a heart that says, God, I need it. You'll receive it. Amazing grace was our worship song this morning. By your grace, I am saved. I'll never be the same, part of the lyrics. God's grace. We need to know it, and we need to know it more. And we need to apply it to our life. We need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you uh, for the Word of God. Though it cuts, though at times it's even hard to take in, because we contend with flesh, Yet, Lord, we know behind every word that we read there's a merciful God and a gracious God that loves us, that wants to work in us, that wants to overflood our sin by His grace. And Lord, I just pray this morning as we all consider, Lord, this message and the whole thought of what it means to be a worldly Christian or a a Christian that is walking close to You. Lord, would You forgive if there's areas of compromise, if there's areas that, Lord, that we're not dealing with, we're refusing to deal with, that we might lay them at Your feet this morning, that we might receive the grace that we read this morning. And Lord, that we might leave this place, Lord, knowing, Lord, that we've been humbled before You. Keep us humble, Lord. Keep us in that place of dependency upon You. And we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.